Hi, I'm Josh Gandy, and you're listening to No Proof. This podcast is an extension of my journey to discover closeness to myself and the outside world. Through mindfulness, the person I'm becoming since sobriety, and the healthy choices I'm learning about along the way. In each episode, I'll be speaking with someone with ties to sobriety, the bar and restaurant industry, wellness, recovery, or all of the above. There's no proof like the present. All right, you're listening to No Proof. As always, I am Josh Gandy, and I'm joined today by Molly Flynn. And Molly, I'm really excited to chat with you because I've seen some of like the gorgeous creations on your Instagram of like the the non-alcoholic drinks that you're creating. And uh, most recently, like what you did with like the uh, damp and dry July. And I think movements like that are just like so exciting to see, um, you know, what it can mean to an account, an individual, um, an event or anything like that. So I'm really excited to kind of like hear more about you, how you got to uh, be this uh, amazing NA creator and kind of like <laughs> everything that uh, surrounds that. So thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, really exciting, a little nerve wracking, but mostly exciting. <laughs> It's like, yeah, whenever you have to talk about yourself, you're just like, oh, where do I, where do I even start? Yeah, Uh, totally. But we have a a shared friend, uh, Brandon Paul Weaver. We chatted about you last week and that's where I got to really kind of like dig in on uh, some of the stuff that you've been creating. It's just like really exciting to see um, what's happening out there. But I guess it's like a way of getting started if you don't mind just kind of like, you know, plopping us in and what kind of like your background with the the industry and, uh, you know, kind of what's what's kept you in this industry for a while and what's exciting about it. Absolutely. Well, I, contrary to popular belief, I am actually not a bartender. I've never been in the bartending industry, but I do come from the coffee industry, which has a lot of overlap with, uh, with the alcohol-based industry and, and just with hospitality in general. And I was in coffee for about 17 or 18 years. I kind of lost track. It was a long time. (laughs) And uh, it was a really satisfying career. Um, That's actually how I met Brandon was through coffee. Um, And uh, it it was good. (laughs) But I I think coffee was kind of my introduction to alcohol. Um, I made when I when I moved to Seattle, I made a group of friends who were all in the coffee industry and they were um, just excellent professionals. And they had great palettes and they loved sharing with me the joys of craft cocktails. So we would uh, go around, feels like every night, I'm sure it wasn't that often, but we would, uh, you know, just enjoy the complex and unique flavors of especially classic cocktails. Um, so that's really how I got my start with consuming alcohol and my interest in craft cocktails and, um, you know, my, co- my coffee career progressed. Uh, I got to do some really cool things through that and being um, like a U.S. sales rep for a high-end espresso machine company. I got to work for Intelligentsia Coffee. Um, those were really cool experiences and they took me all over the United States. Um, at the same time, uh, as all of that was going on, I was married to uh, my ex-husband and that was... Um, 
again, a very like satisfying and, and uh, satisfying relationship that I appreciate just like with coffee and in a way, sort of like how I appreciate alcohol in my life, but um, also toxic, just like coffee and my husband and, <laughs> and, and, and alcohol. <laughs> and so um, around 2015, I, uh, I actually got divorced and I moved from Chicago to California all on my own. And it was one of the bravest things I've ever done um, and the scariest. And it was at that time that my drinking really escalated. And it, it had been going through a steady progression throughout my whole time of consuming alcohol. Um, but it really skyrocketed then just because I was dealing with so much grief and, and confusion about who I was outside of my then husband and and who I was as a queer person and all of the things. Like, you know, there's there's just so much that goes into that. Um, so I, I went from, you know, at the very beginning being like a, an occasional cocktail drinker, an occasional beer drinker to drinking about 10 alcoholic beverages per day average. So sometimes it was a lot more and, uh, it was, it was a really dark period of my life and I, I struggled a lot, um, personally and professionally. Um, I did have a job at the time in coffee, but I could barely keep it because I couldn't function without alcohol. And then, of course, I couldn't function while I was drinking alcohol. So I was kind of useless. Um, was this something that just like at the time as like you kind of see it ramping up? Is it like something that you were aware of or is it one of those things that just kind of like, you know, life was kind of like spinning at you know, such fast progression that just like, is it one of those things like one day you kind of like hit a wall or were you kind of like aware as it were, was happening of just like, this is something I maybe want to curb or it's maybe something I want to curb, but it just kind of like feels out of control. Like what was your kind of like relationship with the drinking at the time? How aware or unaware of it were you? At various points of my drinking, it was somewhere in between those two. Um, like I remember there being certain moments in my experience with alcohol that I was like, this is maybe not great. Like, um, like I remember vaguely the first time that I drank alcohol before going to work, like seven or eight in the morning. And I felt like I needed to have a shot of whiskey in order to get myself through the day. And not long thereafter, bringing a bottle of wine to work that I hid and drank out of a coffee mug, things like that, that were, um, red flags, obviously, but uh, I could only see them as like yellow flags um, because I wasn't ready to face the reality of my addiction. And I, and I ultimately did come to identify it as an addiction. Um, it wasn't until, until I was in California and I was drinking, you know, excessive, like really, really excessively that I finally was like, this is a problem. But even then, and for a year into my sobriety, I could never call myself an alcoholic or an addict. Um, so it, it really took me a long time to accept it. And that's something you do now? Yes. Oh, I wholeheartedly embrace the identity of being an alcoholic um, because I I actually had a moment a year into my sobriety where I was like, 
I have done this great alcohol cleanse and I'm going to reward myself with a, a glass of wine. And it was kind of like uh, some people do with a diet, we'll do a cheat day. Um, that was, I always kind of had it in my back pocket. Like I'm just going to be al alcohol free for today, for this month, for this year. And someday I can have a cheat day. And when I had that cheat day, it turned into a cheat week where I couldn't stop drinking. And uh, that for me was the wake up call, the, the, the final wake up call where it was like, this is not a matter of me having just not learned how to drink correctly, you know, correctly by the society standards. It is actually for me an addiction. And um, even though I don't find joy in my addiction, I find a tremendous amount of joy in identifying as sober. So through accepting that I am an alcoholic and a recovering alcoholic, um, I get, I get the gift of celebrating my life without alcohol. It's kind of cool. What did that kind of year leading up to that feel like as far as like the way that you talked about yourself or like, you know, what were, what were you saying at, at times? Did you kind of like feel like you were shielding that kind of like last portion that you needed to become sober by having that kind of like cheat day in the sky? Like how did, uh, you know, you know, what was happening about the way that you talked about yourself? It was weird. I still identified as sober. Um, I just didn't identify as an alcoholic. It was just like, I have a problem with drinking, you know, in quotes, or I would, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, I kind of like made these excuses in how I explained it to people, or I just wouldn't talk about it at all. Um, but when I talked about it, I would often disclose to people even when they didn't need to know about it I'd be like oh but don't worry I can have a cheat day whenever I want and it was kind of like um it was kind of like incentive it was like a for me it it made it less of an overwhelming obstacle to feel like oh I have to be completely alcohol free for the rest of my life and now now that I've been sober for over six years I actually want to be alcohol free for the rest of my life. Um, but I still kind of use the same sort of psychology of like, well, I'm just going to, it, it's sort of like the one day at a time thing. Like um, it, I just think about it as I, you know, I want to make it to seven years sober because that would be cool. And then when I get to seven years sober, I'll probably want to get to like seven and a half years and then eight, you know, <laughs> just keep building on it. So it's, it's still the idea that I hypothetically could have alcohol at any time, but I never will. It's crazy how much words matter in yeah. that. How, how much of a release did it feel like for you once you kind of were able to say those words? That I'm an alcoholic? Yeah. Did it feel like a new transition had begun from there? Like, did it feel almost like clean slate sobriety or... It's funny, when I said a second ago that I've been sober for six years, I included that first year. Um, I don't, I don't, I didn't start the clock over at that one year mark when I had alcohol. So it didn't exactly feel like a clean slate. In fact, I felt a little bit of grief 
because then I had to really wrestle with this idea that like, you know, what were all of my preconceptions about alcoholism? What did it mean to me that my parents warned me for years when I was growing up that alcoholism ran in our family and lo and behold, I'm an alcoholic and, you know, all of the complexity that goes along with the family dynamics. Um, you know, there were a lot of things that I had to sort through and grieve over. Um, and it wasn't until I really, you know, I don't think there was a specific turning point for me where it changed from grief to joy. I just now feel like exuberantly thrilled <laughs> about, about being sober. And that just happened slowly because I gave myself that room to come to terms with it in my own time and accept it. And then here I am. <laughs> I think that's really important too. And I think like one of the biggest discovery pieces I've learned from chatting with so many people of like how important it is doing things on your terms in your own words. Mm -hmm. um, any kind of like struggle points that I've kind of like heard in some of these conversations is when people try to take their own path and journey and plug it into a mold that already exists for somebody else. And I feel like that's when they kind of like hit these obstacles. Um, and even, you know, sometimes the fear in some people of what it means to think about forever. Mm -hmm. um, even for me, I think like, you know, you talk about the one day at a time, like they're cliches for a reason, like whether yeah. you're saying one day at a time or like whatever in your own vocabulary allows you to kind of like play that psychological game. Um, you know, even for me, I was telling myself that, you know, I quit for a month just to see kind of like if, if I could do it. And then I took inventory of myself after that month. And I was like, well, let's go another day. Let's go another month. And it kind of became these very small collection pieces. Then now when I look back, like, is this like enormous trophy room? It's like in October, mm. it will be five years. It's like, wow, I can't oh. believe I built all that because I only like, didn't do this one, you know, every day I didn't do this. And then this is kind of like what it becomes. Um, but I think if you, for some people, if you try to look at those days as a collection in front of you, it's much more intimidating, uh, than it is the reward of, of kind of like looking back on kind of like what you've been able to become and leave behind in some areas. I completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, congratulations. Five Thank years you. is huge. That's super it's, exciting. It, it's also strange because. You know, I, I think if I were to jump back five years, I think about like five years from that point, I was just like, "Wolf, Jesus, that's forever. Yeah. <laughs> but now when I look back, it's just like, wow, I feel like this is something I, I introduced like pretty recently. So it, it's really strange to like look back in that direction and kind of like realize the many phases of uh, self that I've been able to be. And I think mm -hmm. like that was the main and this is, I think, something that I learned about myself, like even most recently, it's just like that kind of letting go of knowing that I can shed any part at any point to try to transform. You know, one day I said that, uh, you know, I'm not going to drink right now. And that became, uh, I'm not going to drink this month. And then it became, I don't drink, you know. I never planned to kind of like have that change in language. It's just like, that's kind of like the way that things evolved and to kind of like feel like I can evolve at any time, I think is like the most freeing and makes every day like a little bit easier of just knowing that like, if I'm gentle with myself, it'll make it easier to kind of go through whatever life throws at the time. Mm -hmm. How that's are really you? Beautiful. How are you with your 
with yourself now? I mean, coming from, uh, you know, that troublesome week into giving yourself the grace to kind of like continue, how did you kind of like change your narrative, your storyline, the way that you spoke to yourself, like what changed in your kind of like vocabulary and all of that? I'm not sure how to answer that question. Um, because like I said before, how the the transition from grief to joy was really gradual. I think the vocabulary change was really gradual as well. So I've just, I continue to use the tools that I learned in rehab. I, I did go to rehab for a couple months and that was really an excellent decision for myself. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that. What did you learn in rehab um, that like are some of the tools that you kind of like carry with you? I had a guest on a, a couple of weeks ago who um, had this beautiful story of like, while they were in rehab, kind of like having the struggle of letting go to a higher power. They were really struggling with that from like a religious standpoint or something like that. And then when mm -hmm. they were one day kind of like sitting out in a garden and noticed like a rose bush that needed pruned because once the roses grow on the outside, the, the inside will, will die out and decay. So it needs that kind of pruning. And she had a moment where it clicked. She was like, my higher power is a gardener and the gardener does the pruning. Mm. Were there any kind of like moments for you where like maybe you were struggling with the tools that they gave you and you just kind of like needed to transition it into your own terms? Or were there any kind of like tools that you learned while you were there where you were just like, okay, I, I know exactly how to uh, impart this? I also struggled with the higher power bit. Um, but for me, it was a different path because I, I am an atheist and for me, I know I know that there are a lot of different ways a person could approach a higher power, including as an atheist. For me, my path was to uh, set that particular tool aside. Um, and I think even in that action, it taught me that you can have a full toolkit and there may only be certain tools that you need to use. So... For example, now I make non-alcoholic drinks um, and uh, that is probably my most reliable tool in my toolkit because it satisfies an itch that I have as an alcoholic. Um, so I, I think I learned that you can, you can learn these things, you can know the right options for you and just choose what works for you. And leave the rest, which I think is actually a saying in in the rooms. <laughs> Do you, um, I guess, like, what's your current support system? Do you still kind of have like meetings that you rely on? Any kind of groups that you are a part of, or uh, you know, individuals in your life that you kind of have, you know, these open uh, relationships with? Yeah, I haven't regularly gone to meetings since moving to Seattle, uh, which was about six months after I went sober or so, uh, maybe even less. Um, so I, I actually didn't go to sobriety meetings for very long, but they were useful when I attended them, especially going to, um, and I'm not here to preach about any particular brand, but there was one particular meeting that was um, mindfulness-based that was really good for me. Um, 
And it's interesting. I have since realized that I, my addiction to alcohol is not, um, it doesn't live in a vacuum, you know? And, and I know that's something that I learned in rehab. A lot of people talk about that in, um, in addiction recovery. Um, I see hints of my alcoholism in the way that I approach food and eating or in, uh, how I manage money and spending. Um, and so recently I went back to that particular meeting that I, uh, that meeting group that I really appreciated and I cried. I was just like, this is such a relief to be in a space where I am seen for all of my parts, not just my addiction, but also my strength. And I know these people can understand where I'm coming from. Um, so even though meetings haven't been a regular part of my life, I know that they're always there for me and I know when I need to go to one. Um, but I think my biggest support in my sobriety has been my partner. Um, we've been together unofficially since the weekend before I went to rehab <laughs> and officially since a little bit after rehab. And he has been extremely supportive of me in my life, um, particularly he was never a, a huge drinker himself, uh, but he now virtually never drinks alcohol. We don't keep alcohol in our home. Um, he really enjoys my passion for non-alcoholic drinks. So I just feel supremely seen and supported. And that is what makes the biggest difference for me is having him and the rest of my support network of friends and family who, who know what to do and say if ever I am um, in a position where I need support. What was it like you know, growing as a person with your partner, did, um, did you ever feel like you needed to be working on yourself separately to bring a more, you know, composed version of yourself to the relationship? Or was this something that was kind of like happening at the same time? Cause I hear sometimes people feel like they need to leave a part of a relationship to work on themselves because they want to bring the best foot forward. Um, but that often, you know, leaves somebody in the shadows. They don't necessarily like always know what's going on. And I think even for me, when I was first kind of like balancing, is this something that I want to like keep continuing to do? It became more difficult when I was trying to keep it just to myself. It was like much more difficult to just kind of like try to balance it in my head. If there were like the days where I was struggling, where I was just like, am I making a mistake by doing this? Especially because I was a bartender working within the industry. I was just like, mm -hmm. still kind of like struggling with like, can I remain in this space if I don't do this thing that I am known for doing and mm -hmm. <laughs> felt like I have always done. And then when I included my partner and like the way that I was feeling like, she was great because she can see beyond me. She could see beyond the situation and always like really brought, uh, you know, really great kind of like words and everything to it. And I felt more whole when I brought her into this kind of like huge change in my life than when I was trying to kind of like better myself to meet her um, as a better person. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Um, I think to answer your question, I... I knew I knew my partner many years ago, uh, actually, when I first really started drinking craft cocktails. Uh, he was a part of that friend group. And 
then we didn't have any reason you know we we didn't really stay in touch we weren't friends for many years and then just got back in touch coincidentally around the time of when I was on the verge of going sober so really the bulk of my relationship with him has been in this whole sobriety process and while I don't think I would recommend to someone jumping into a relationship while jumping into a new way of thinking about drinking and oneself and one's traumas. Um, it worked for me. <laughs> it was really a very unique situation. And I give my partner a lot of credit for that because he is just by nature a very buoyant and accepting and supportive person. So I think we just got lucky. I think I've seen other people get into relationships in early sobriety that did not turn out well. So <laughs> you, you really do go through a lot of changing at that time. What's been some of the biggest revelations to you as far as like things that you get to love about yourself? Um, mm. I, I feel like you mentioned the word gift earlier, and I feel mm -hmm. like that is really a, a true representation of, of what you get from sobriety. It's a, a ton of very small gifts that become this big shining piece of significance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I feel like I'm still revealing things about myself every single day that I'm, I'm proud of. And, you know, the parts of myself that I maybe am not proud of, I now feel much more compelled to know how to deal with it or talk about it. Um, I, I think it's been very rewarding to not want to just push everything away anymore for these like last five years and just kind of like know that I exist uh in this life but um you know what are some of the rewarding things about yourself like what have what have you found what do you love what do you how do you use it how do you show up in the world now oh I love this question um for me I think some of the most gift-giving aspects of my sobriety my current chapter in life and everything is I have learned that I can be really impactful and I always wanted to be impactful when I was you know growing up in my early adulthood um, like I always saw myself as being someone who wanted to kind of save the world out of this deep sense of compassion for you know like uh like global warming, like I want to save the animals. I want to save the planet. I want to save the people on the planet. <laughs> and even though that's not the line of work I've gone into, I found that that desire for me to be impactful was something I could never utilize before. I could never learn those skills and put them into practice because I was sedated all the time. And now I've gotten to do some really cool things as a result of being clear-headed and having energy. Oh, I will give the disclaimer that I don't have the greatest energy level of anyone in the world. I'm still a very tired person. Um, so sobriety doesn't fix everything, but I, I've gotten to do things like uh, I had a project um, in 2018 called hashtag coffee two or coffee two. And it was, of course, based off of the Me Too movement, um, but specific to the coffee industry. And it was for the purpose of combating discrimination and harassment in that specialty coffee industry. And um, then most recently, I got to do Dampen Dry July. And 
I got to lead that project as well. And those things never would have happened if I was still um, consuming alcohol because I think even if I did somehow figure out how to moderate my alcohol consumption, I think I would still be too, um, I would still be too consumed even with that moderate amount of alcohol. And now I have freedom. I think That's your choice of answer. language is uh, really important too. For both of those uh, events, you use got to do. I mm -hmm. get to do these things. It's, it's, you know, the difference between like I have to and I get to is enormous when you start kind of like uh, making changes in that. And I feel like the, the amount of things that I get to do now are are very important. And I am, you know, eternally grateful for those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So talk to me a little bit about um, being an NA drink creator. What is, I mean, especially coming from coffee, I mean, you were kind of always in a space of like understanding flavor without um, spirit. And then I think like, you know, um, going into like the craft cocktail movement, there's kind of like some similar storytelling as far as like, you know, this family produces this thing, brings it this way, it tastes this, it introduces in, in this such a way. Um, and I think that's what's very exciting for me as far as like creating NA drinks is we've kind of like left the mocktail movement, which was, you know, usually just kind of like soda syrup juice kind Blech. of thing. And now everyone's <laughs> kind of like discovering the new uh, and creative ways to create these things. And I think this is something I was talking to Brandon about that I think is missing in the NA space right now is a touch of ego. I think for someone to want to Ooh. outdo somebody else's NA drink is what is going to like keep this thing growing and make it exciting. But I'd love to hear from you, like what goes into non-alcoholic uh, cocktail creation? What are you looking for? Where do you think we're at with this now? Where do we stand to uh, to move to? And I guess like, where do you want to see things like damp and dry July a couple of years from now? Mm, you have such great questions. <laughs> um. I, I'm going to start at the end of that. So I think that what I want to see from this movement is not necessarily ego because I, I, I understand and appreciate what you're saying and how that plays out in both the alcohol industry and the coffee industry. Um, that definitely does fuel a lot of, um, innovation, um, and, you know, and, and competition and camaraderie, it, collaboration, it, there's a lot of good that comes from that. But that's not what I'm hoping for. What I'm hoping for is to see the current surge of community that is, is growing out of the NA world um, to really just flourish. Because um, that is what's the most inspiring to me about this, like, I love having non-alcoholic drinks, but if you don't have anybody to share it with, it kind of doesn't matter, you know? So uh, I've been really inspired, especially by the younger generations, which makes me feel super old to say that, but there, <laughs> there is a, um, there's just this huge surge in the like 20 somethings uh, being sober or identifying as, ident identifying as sober curious or 
what have you, whatever name they want to give to it, they are really excited about um, these non-alcoholic options and inspiring other people to live a healthy, full, and um, wellness-inspired life. So I want more of that. I want more collaboration. And I think right now we have a good amount of it. Um, I am concerned that as more and more products come on the market and more and more creators come into um, social spaces, the message may get a little diluted. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> and yeah, I haven't thought that one fully through yet. I just, I see us on a trajectory of maybe the enthusiasm. The enthusiasm for non-alc is there, but it's changing. Um, anyway, I think non-alc is great. And I love playing with all the different products that we have. Um, it's kind of incredible that almost every week, I think actually every week there is a new product on the market. Uh, yeah, I can't think of any recent weeks recent that I haven't seen a new product come onto the market. And they're not all good, but a lot of them are useful and a lot of them are great. <laughs> Um, I kind of forget what the original question was. I went on a tangent. <laughs> no, I think you covered a lot of it for the most part. And I think okay. like, you know, you, you bring us to a good spot of like, you know, the availability. And I do want to say that I love your mention of community. I do realize that like saying ego was my, me choosing the most harsh word to kind of like <laughs> get to that uh, great point that you rounded out with uh, community and enthusiasm. Uh, and I think it is exciting to see so many different products coming to the market because of what that does for the conversation. Mm. Um, you know, I think like, as this continues, you will see some of the more standouts, you'll see the ones that can kind of become like the everyday trustworthy products. Whereas, you know, you, you know, can kind of tell, I spend a lot of time uh, reading about it and all of that. And you can kind of tell the ones that want to come to market just for the sake of like having the real estate. And then the ones that kind of can really truly stand on, um, what they produce. And, mm -hmm. uh, I think like as more and more of that continues, I think like the, the public will begin to see that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think at this point, I'm just like more excited that it is becoming a little bit more commonplace. It's just like, you know, sometimes my aunts will tell me about things and I'm just like, how do you, how did you hear about this? <laughs> like Aww, the fact that it's like so showing sweet. up in places where I used to have to pontificate before to have mm -hmm. it like talked about is really exciting. And I think, even as we see it change, maybe in to like more commonplace terms, even if it, that is fueled by like the younger generation of, of like bringing up sober curious and things like that. I think as people discover that it can be enjoyed in the same places that alcohol was and kind of like share in those moments that I thought I was going to have to give up when I stopped drinking alcohol, which is just sometimes as basic as having something to hold on to while being mm -hmm. at a party, uh, no longer feeling left out in those departments. I think as people come to experience it and they have it in those places where alcohol used to exist and they realize that even if I start with an alcoholic beverage the other like two or three that I have after that don't have to have alcohol in them I'm still getting the mm -hmm. same experience it's tough to go back to the way you used to live I think when you kind of like have these realizations of just like you know how much more fulfilling 
your life can be when you remove this thing that like you may not even be aware is like serving as like a detriment to your life. So I'm excited for more and more people to just kind of like plug in an NA drink where an alcoholic drink used to live. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited for the bartenders and the drink creators to want to become uh, more playful in that area. You know, the Mm -hmm. second that I started removing alcohol from my drinks, it kind of like reignited a passion that I felt was maybe waning in drink creating because I was like, if I remove what I used to think was the backbone of this, like, what am I even left with? So it just kind of like, spun the way that I went to create and even the way that I uh, went on to, you know, consume NA drinks and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that was also a really long winded answer, but I, no, if anything, I, love I think that. like the NA drink space is, is exciting. I agree. And I, I especially want to pick up on one thing that you said about how there are, um, there are more and more options becoming available, both for people who drink and don't drink. Um, because that in after community, I think that is what's most important to me. It's just that there is access to quality beverages so that we can all be included. And then if we have access to this social norm and this delicious product, then we also have access to community. So it all just, it's kind of circular. <laughs> And I agree with you. I want to see more and more bars and restaurants offering low and no alcohol beverages on their menus and specifically on their menus. It doesn't really do people any good if you just tell your servers, well, we can make a drink for people if they need it. Like if people have to ask, they might not ever ask and then they're just going to get water. And that's leaving money on the table for the bar or the restaurant. And it's leaving the customer dissatisfied and I love your take on how it is um, stimulating and, and it's a creative journey for a bartender to get to play with these low and no alcohol beverages. I think that's so cool, so true. And I want to see more of that. And that's part of one of the reasons why we did Damp and Dry July. And I think that's a really great opportunity for, you know, you know in a lot of ways, bartenders and drink creators kind of like they lead the charge on these things. Mm-hmm. And if we were to just kind of like put it in the guest hands, like it could, that's where it can kind of like be fumbled. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even, it, it's not their fault. Uh, right. You know, even going to a restaurant or a bar, like that can be intimidating. Even if you're somebody who like knows what they love, always know what they want. That moment of stumbling on, I don't really know how to ask for what I want. Right. Where if I were to walk up to a bar and I see a menu and I can order something that has a name, boom, I'm done. It's over. But if I walk up to a bar and I'm new to sober curiosity and I'm new to this kind of like landscape of I can still go out and enjoy myself and I don't necessarily need to drink alcohol. The second that I met with, well, what do you even like? And I struggle to answer to the bartender what I'm looking for. And they're Mm -hmm. kind of like harassing me in a way of just like, you know, help me get you something. That's when I can easily revert to, uh, I guess I'll just have a gin and tonic. And then you're back where you kind of like started because like the atmosphere that was created was not hospitable when it's Mm -hmm. just kind of as as simple as listing a few things and listing things that have names. It's just like making it easy and comfortable to kind of like order these things makes it feel like it's more part of the, you know, norm. Yeah. I loved your usage of the word hospitable because that is so often what, uh, I know I'm using maybe not the right language to call it the alcohol industry, but 
so often it's called the hospitality industry. And if it is not, if you're not offering something for people who, who can't drink alcohol, is that really being hospitable? Like you can show hospitality in those moments, uh, but I think you really, really express that um, level of care and attention to your guests when you can connect them with what they need. And the simplest way to do that is by having it on your menu and and not just not just juice, please. <laughs> please, I'm begging you, not just juice. <laughs> what um what tips could you maybe give like a somebody who hasn't really like started to dabble in the in the NA drink space? What are what are some maybe places that they can look or some things to consider if you know they want to go beyond the the juice, simple syrup and and soda? model? Like what ingredients do you look to? Yeah. Uh, I guess my question in response to that is, are you looking for more suggestions for a uh, home consumer or for a bartender? I guess uh, a little bit of both. Um, Mm -hmm. Home consumers, like, you know, someone like that, where do I even start? Uh, I think part of that for me is just kind of like answering the question of what do I like? Mm Because there's a really, there's really, really great places to kind of like point you out. But I guess for uh, for the sake of this question, more specifically, the kind of like bartender of like, what ways can they begin to introduce some NA drinks into a program that already exists? Absolutely. I think that going back to an earlier question you had about what we need to see from the non-alc movement in the future, I think one thing I hope for is more access to education for bars and restaurants, because that doesn't really exist yet from the brands. Um, the brands tend to be more geared towards, uh, you know, home home bartenders, home consumers, and less towards on-premise and uh, on-premise sales. And so jumping back to the current question, I think that um, a great place to start for bartenders and, and bar owners is to talk to your distributors. Because in lieu of not, you know, in lieu of having a an actual educator out there in the non-alc space, um, your distributor knows their portfolio backwards and forwards, including the non-alcoholic section of your portfolio. And um, like I could point you, like if you were in Seattle, I could point you towards like five different reps who all know their non-alc portfolio backwards and forwards, and they um, can tell you how to use them in place of your alcohol uh, components. Um, I would also recommend like if you access, uh, you know, social media, like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, um, there are communities, uh, like, um, there's a non-toxicated, uh, in, on Facebook and some other similar groups. And those forums often have recurring people on there who are becoming experts in the non-alc space. And uh, hire those people, hire them to consult with you for your bar or your restaurant to um, develop your non-alc menu with you because, or, you know, hire another bartender who is in the industry who's really passionate about non-alcoholic cocktails. Um, I I think there are a lot of great options and it does involve a little bit of time and money at present, but those options are out there. Hire me, I'll (laughs) I'll work for you. That's a great plug. Yeah. 
And I think like um, I had a guest on here uh, a while ago and they said uh, the easiest thing that you can do as a consumer to get non-alcoholic drinks in your area is to ask for them. Yes. That's a a great place to start. Absolutely. Um, On that note, there there are forms at most grocery stores that if you want to see your favorite NA products in the grocery store, um, like go to Kroger, QFC, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> it's uh, They have um, their spirit section and they have a growing NA beer section. So why not have a growing NA spirit section as well that you can just like go get when you're buying bananas and cereal, you know? <laughs> so fill out that form, talk with the manager, talk to the people at the checkout. People get really excited about talking about this stuff because it's new products that people want. And ultimately it's new products that people will buy and that just makes money for the business. So it's a win-win for everybody. It's awesome. I love it. Well, Molly, this has been great. Thank you so much for chatting about, you know, your story, your journey and how it got to uh, where it is now with delicious NA drinks and a bright future and uh, a great story to tell. Thank you so much. This was great. That's no proof. Thank you for listening. And if you liked what you heard or are interested to hear more, make sure to like and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Music was written and recorded by my brother Kyle right here in Columbus, Ohio. To pick up an NA enamel pen and other great barware, head to moverandshakerco.com. More info and other shows like the Focus on Health podcast with Alex Jump can be found at fohealth.org. That's focusonhealth.org.